This week on Life and Faith. Working that muscle of patience, for example, so that when your plans are interrupted, your response isn't irritation. The more you work that in the context of limits, the better equipped you will be to respond to the intrusions of a constraint that you didn't choose. Raising a person, that's a complex task. They'd done the job. Local authorities had it underhand. This does seem to me like a very frightening situation. Wow, he's going to have this as a lifelong thing. None of us are doctors and we're all doing fine. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Good to be with you. I'm sure we've all had the experience of our lives happily moving in one direction and then something comes along and pulls the rug out from under us. Sometimes, of course, that can be very dramatic and painful. My guest today was a healthy, sporty and musical teenager when, unexpectedly, things that she could up until then do naturally and easily suddenly became physically difficult and then eventually impossible. Steph Judd is a Sydney lawyer who has had about 15 years to process a significant physical change and adjusting to living with a disability. But she's learned plenty of things about herself and picked up some wisdom along the way that I think all of us can benefit from. Now, during much of the last two years as we've wrestled with the pandemic, all of us have experienced situations we couldn't have imagined previously. Well, Steph Judd's interest in and thinking around our human limitations offers something important to help us navigate challenge and change and how we can depend on each other more. Steph, you were an active, sporty teenager, Hmm. and then your life took a bit of a turn, didn't it? Something goes wrong. What age were you when that happened? And tell us what, what it was that occurred. Well, I was 15 when I noticed that my hand just felt a bit funny when I was writing things. And I did a lot of art. I played a lot of music. And then I started to notice that when I was playing oboe and clarinet, the right hand just didn't feel the same. Mm. And then that slowly became more and more entrenched. And so I went to physios, I went to doctors, and that was the beginning of what was an escalating medical exploration to try and figure out what was going on. And what was going on was essentially I was having, at the time, activity-induced muscle seizures. What does that mean? So it's like whenever you, say you get a cramp yeah. in your leg, and everything seizes up and you can't move, that was happening on the right side of my body all the time and wasn't induced by anything in particular. It's been incredibly confronting for you. You were into sport and so one day you could throw a ball really well and then, then what happens next? You sort of That becomes impossible? Slowly, yes. Yeah. One thing that people with movement disorders would know a lot about is that you find ways of compensating. So compensatory movement is something that a lot of people with any form of movement disorder, you find ways to work around. So So you were doing that for a while yeah, before it became impossible to ignore, I guess. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then you get to a point where you've been going to physios, you you, Mm. you end up presumably at a specialist who says, you've got this condition. 
Oh, I went to um, a plethora of specialists mm. and ended up seeing the world's best neurologists. Yep. So that happened to be the year of the World Neurology Congress that happened to be in Sydney, okay. Australia. Was so that I, helpful? Uh, well, the thing is that they were totally mystified by my condition, mm. which is on the one hand, it was a good thing that it for me, that, that it wasn't like a degenerative illness. They, for a long time, thought it was Parkinson's disease, uh-huh. which would have been really tough. Yeah. Um, but it was something that they couldn't put their finger on. Mm. And then when they did, they told you it was what? They called it a condition. It's a symptom called dystonia. But dystonias are caused by all kinds of conditions. So people with Parkinson's have dystonias. Mm. But what's causing it, they don't really know what causes some dystonias. Um, a lot of musicians, a lot of lawyers, and a lot of doctors around the world have dystonia. And essentially, it's something that goes wrong in your central nervous system, it kind of overheats. And so, you know, you're living a high pace, high stress lifestyle, and then suddenly the circuit just cooks. And then, does that become, is that a permanent thing? And does it come in and out, or is it just always with you? Initially, it was just movement induced. So, like, whenever I was playing an instrument, or whenever I was trying to write or when I was trying to do that. But now it's all the time. Um, and it's obviously, you know, if you've had your hand in a cast for a couple of months, you'll notice that there's been muscle atrophy. Yeah. I've had that for 15 years. So because you've been compensating, your muscles, they deteriorate over time. So day to day now, in what ways is this impacting you? Well, I do a lot of things left-handed. Mm-hmm. I can still write with my right hand, yep. but when I want to do something quickly, I do it with my left hand. I pretty much do all things with my left hand. How's that go? Well, um, I'm surprised at how often people say that they don't notice mm. because I'm very conscious of the fact that it feels like a very asymmetrical movement to me. But, you know, you find ways of working around all sorts of things. Now, you've had this for years now. Mm. Tell me about the experience, though, of coming to terms with it. Mm. I mean, imagine that was a sort of gradual thing. Was it hard to accept and imagine it's quite a process? I think you're right. Like, I think it is a gradual process of coming to terms with that kind of thing because I'd never had anything... Go wrong. No. Yeah. I'd never really been in a hospital before, mm. apart from visiting relatives, And so I remember the point at which I kind of psychologically thought, oh, they'll resolve this. And then I remember the point at which that clicked over and I thought, maybe they won't. And so I think that, you know, I'm a person of faith. I've trusted that there is a God who loves me for as long as I can remember. But I remember really distinctly when I was really early on into the process, I realised that I needed to make a shift. And the shift was this. I realised that so much of who I was, how I defined my identity, was tied up in what I could do. Mm. So much of how I held myself out into the world was, I'm really good at sport. I'm really good at music. I can perform and I can achieve. And that achievement metric, the link between my worth as a person and how well I can achieve things and perform things to a certain standard, was quite close together. And so you had to wrestle with that. Did you or have you gotten to a point where your identity has had to change a bit and let go of that achievement-oriented focus that you'd had? I mean, you're still doing lots of stuff. Well, that's the thing, Simon, is that I'd like to say <laughs> Are you that, cured oh, of that? I'm, you know, I no longer see my worth in my achievements. <laughs> and I think that's like an iterative process. Like, mm. I think that 
I don't think identity is ever static. I think that we're always in conversation with ourselves, with other people, with the events that happen in our life and how we think of ourselves is constantly changing. I would say that I did a lot of work in myself in trying to sever that link. But I would say also that um, I kind of shifted it to other forms of performance that I could still do. And I just gave them, you know, greater weight. So like <laughs> academics. Now, my uh, colleague, Justine Toe, who you know well, mm-hmm. who, who admits to being an achievement addict, mm. would, would, I think, recognize what you're describing here. Totally. And I think a lot of us experience that. And it's hard not to. Like, I think that achievement and productivity is a good thing, but it's just not an ultimate thing. And it can't be because then it will crush you. And it did, honestly. It, um, I think it does for a lot of us. Yeah. Now, let's sort of talk a bit more about that because I know you've had quite a journey in terms mm. of this experience, but also applying that to broad areas of life. So you've developed a bit of a perspective on limits or our limitations as humans uh, specifically, yeah. that those limitations might not entirely be a bad thing. I yeah. think you've come to that point. But tell us what you mean by that. Well, it was actually at the beginning of the pandemic that I first started talking to one of my friends about this idea that there seems to be something in the air that we live and breathe in our society that sees the things that limit us as either inconveniences or bad things. That all the infrastructure of our modern lives are geared towards getting rid of. Yes. So, you know, we've got technologies that try and speed up our productivity. We've got cars that get us from A to B more quickly so we don't have to, oh, you know, heaven forbid we have to, like, take our time getting somewhere. And I just started to think about that at the beginning of 2020 and for, you know, for those around the world that entered into lockdowns sooner than others... When you experience something that's outside your control and is an incursion upon your autonomy, we were all grappling with that. And I was thinking about that in the context of the fact that I have had to deal with it for a very long time. Like I'm always conscious of the way that my body is. Whereas when when you can move easily... You're less conscious. You You don't think about that. Yeah, it's an automatic movement. But when you're not, you have to be more mindful of your body and you actually have to have a more tender, gentle relationship with your body Mm -hmm. such that you're like paying attention to how is it, how is it going? There's kind of a reciprocal relationship (laughs) between you and your body. But I think that that also translates to kind of like a meta level of our lives Like, I'm quite a proactive person, Simon. I think I I have a a penchant for control. Um, And I... Yeah, and you've had to, to some degree, let go of some of that, presumably, in this. Do you think, as as some of the rest of us have had to, in this pandemic period, come to terms with or accept or be a bit more at peace with our limitations? Because we have been... We've had the rug pulled out from under us, haven't we? Ways we thought we were in control, we Mm. weren't. Things we could never have imagined, really, have happened to us with mass lockdowns, Mm. being where we've been restricted to our homes. What are the things we might have learned? Lots of us are thinking about this, right? What are the things we've picked up that we might hold on to that'd be good for us? Yeah. And I think I should say at the outset of this kind of conversation that... When I say that limitations can be a good thing, I don't think I'm saying that anything that restricts you is a good thing. So, for example, public health restrictions, I don't think that there's something inherent about them that's good. I mean, they're obviously calculated for the common good. (laughs) But 
I think that those moments where we realize that we are not in control, they are instructive for us. And how we choose to respond to those moments where we realize that our autonomy isn't at the center of how we live our lives and how we navigate our way through the world, that's really crucial for our flourishing as human beings. And the lessons that I've learned about what it is to, you know, our bodies aren't just accessories to our real self. Our bodies are foundational to what it is to be a human. And because of that, the limits of our bodies, the fact that we need sleep, there are certain basic needs of embodiment that teach us about, oh, maybe I can actually accept that I'm not in control of things, that there are certain given realities to my life and my experience of the world that aren't to be resisted and railed against. Yes, I'm fascinated by this because um, you've tried to, you know, in some of your thinking and writing and speaking about this, you've talked about um, how when we start to think of the things that limit us as human beings, like the sleep's a good one, isn't mm. it? Like everyone needs <laughs> sleep. But a lot of our life is about, seems to be about, and as we think about the dream of technology, mm. it is almost like a disembodied reality yeah. that we're heading towards. I think you'd be hesitant to endorse that, wouldn't you? Because you're talking all about an embodied, restricted, but nonetheless wonderful existence. Yeah. And I'm, obviously I do think that technology is not like an anti-technology message. No. Like I think I've no, obviously, you know, you know, I was unwell last week and I was able to have antibiotics, which was a game changer for me. So obviously like medical and other forms of technology, they can be conducive to our flourishing. But I just think what is it to be a human and what is the end goal of being a human? Mm. One of the answers I'd say to that is relationship. So if you gear your life, if you calibrate your life such that it's all about productivity and that you have no time for interruption, these are things that are pertinent for me, by the <laughs> way. I'm not criticising this from an objective point of view. I'm, I struggle with this. If you resist those kinds of incursions upon your independence and autonomy you actually deprive yourself of the richness of dependency upon one another in relationship. And so I think that any time that we are thinking about productivity hacks and whatever, one of the things that we should maybe be thinking about is how does this affect my ability to live in community and relationship with other people? Now, one of the things you've talked about is how, because of your condition that you're experiencing, mm. you've had to sometimes rely on other people yeah. more and that's ended up being a good thing. Yeah. Tell us I mean, about ended that. up. took me a long time to not despise that. <laughs> My family um, give me a bit of grief about the fact that I think I, I wanted to, always wanted to assert independence, mm. maybe partly out of desire not to inconvenience other people, but partly out of like a, a kind of a pride. Yeah, yeah. it's pride. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Like you don't want to, I don't need you. Yeah. You know, that kind of impulse. Yeah. But as, as my condition has developed, you kind of have... um you know, those compensatory hacks that you kind of, you know, you can rely on to get around things so I can still not have to ask other people for help. As I got older, I have been unable to rely on those crutches, as it were, and I've had to ask for help. And surprise, surprise, it's actually been a really good thing because the intimacy you have when you say, I need help, I need to depend on you, it actually opens up a whole dimension relationally that I think we're missing out on if we just rigidly assert our independence from other people. Mm. 
Open Faith and I'm speaking with Stephanie Judd about her experience of acquiring a physical disability and processing that. And Steph's done a lot of thinking and reading about this topic and that's been part of her journey to making peace with her condition. She makes the distinction between limits and constraints that I think is important in this discussion. So I asked her about that distinction. This was her response. I think that this comes out of a desire to acknowledge that not everything that restricts us is a good thing. That's not what I'm saying when I say that, you know, we should embrace our limits because our experience of the world is a little bit more complicated than that. And particularly our experience as embodied beings is a bit more complex. And I think that's partly a product of the fact that we live in a world that is, I believe, broken in some way. And so it's not that our experience as bodies is as it should be all the time. And so when I, when I say limits, I'm kind of talking about the inherent parameters that are given to us. By being human. By being human. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like the fact that we are creatures and they're inherent and when we go with the grain of them, they are conducive to our flourishing. Whereas I think of constraints as kind of a little bit more arbitrary. There's nothing inherent to them. It's more, you know, something that is externally imposed. It's restriction that can actually intrude upon our flourishing. It doesn't have to be something that's bad, but it's not necessarily going with the grain of any inherent thing to the moral or given universe. Yeah. So there's a kind of createdness to who we are Yeah. and we need to fit with the flow of that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if our resistance to aging mm. is, is relevant here. So you talked about limitations. We, we need to sleep. We need to eat. Mm. We also get old. But we don't like getting old. No. I don't like getting old. But probably there's a way you have to accept the different chapters and stages of life too. Is that part of what you're talking I about? I think it has to be. There's a bioethicist called Gilbert Maylander who talks about the fact that we experience life in a narrative arc. Mm. And that to be human is to be situated within that narrative arc. You know, your birth, your prime, your senescence and your decline. Yeah. And one of the points that he makes is that human dignity attaches to the whole arc of that, not just any point in time, which is significant for how we understand who we really are. You know, if I forget who I am, if I forget who I'm in relationship with, am I any less me? Well... When, when my grandfather was experiencing nearly a decade of cognitive decline and he, you know, gradually was unable to recognise mm. who I was, who he was, all those kinds of things that a lot of people would be familiar with from their own experiences, I find it helpful to think of it not as he's not him, but rather that he is taking a different expression, that his personality is taking a different expression that's affected by these things that are obviously sometimes really painful for people, but it's a different way of thinking about what it is to be human. And the other thing you talked about, community and relationships. Mm. So someone in that situation experiencing dementia or something, yeah. something like that is in one sense lost to who they were, but not when they're held in that community with you as his granddaughter and his family around him who sort of hold that memory mm. for him and so on. There's, there's something beautiful about that. It's hard to sort of pin down though, isn't it? Um, you do, you know, you seek healing and freedom from pain and burden and that's a good thing, right? I just want to make sure people yeah, feel, yes. you know, 100% that. I do. Yeah. And actually, one of the really wonderful things about the journey that I've been on over the past 15 years has been the encounter with all sorts of allied health professionals, but also 
different forms of therapists whose own relationship with their body and how they see themselves as moving through the world has, I think, led me to understand myself in a more full way that is truer to what it is to be human. So whilst I don't think of this condition that I have of dystonia as being a good limitation, I think of it more in the category of constraint, constraint that modifies how I understand my limitation. So I need to pay more attention to my bodily limits because of the way that my central nervous system has gone wrong, essentially. Does it, is, is your condition made worse by various factors like stress mm-hmm. and yeah. busyness? And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so sleep deprivation, um, busyness, pretty much the whole way I've chosen to gear my life for <laughs> most of my life, um, which is really, it's really instructive for how I think about Even my own ambition, I'm quite an ambitious person, but the way I think about, well, maybe those options aren't open to me because of the impact it would have on my body. And then coming to a piece about that Mm. is really significant, isn't it? Hugely significant. And I think it requires you to reckon with what role does productivity and um, achievement, what we're talking about before, what role do those things have to my self-understanding? What role does my autonomy and ability to achieve the things that I want to achieve, what role does that have in how I understand my life as being one that I can be content with? To what extent does your faith give you a kind of eternal perspective on life now such that it helps you uh, as you come to terms with limitations Mm. here? That's an enormously and wonderfully so enormous question, Simon. I think I'd give two partial answers to that. The first is that one of the biggest game changers for me in understanding that in Jesus I am loved and approved of unconditionally, that means that I don't have to seek approval that's contingent upon my performance. Mm. And that that's pretty big. Like, you know, you can you can be oh, disappointed if you fail or whatever, but it's actually genuinely no longer existential for me. As in, if I, if I don't perform as well as I'd hoped. It's not a devastation for yeah. you. Yeah. And like, maybe that fluctuates depending on other, <laughs> other factors <laughs> yeah. in your life. But on the whole, I'd say that there's been this trajectory towards peace and contentment, knowing that there's just such security in knowing that I'm loved in that way and I'm approved of. And that to me, you know, the Christian faith says at the heart of everything, the most real thing that there is, is relationship. And so in terms of what am I ambitious for, what kind of things am I going to prioritise? I think that that's probably the first thing. So how, how I understand my approval and my worth, but also the hope that I have. I believe in a God who isn't far off, that hasn't stayed aloof, but he's, he's deeply invested in the world and in me. And I think that, you know, he's demonstrated that by sparing no expense on the cross and coming in the person of Jesus. He understands frailty. He took on human form. He gets what it is to be contingent and dependent in the sense that he became a human. And he's also deeply invested in reversing everything that has been broken in the world. And we see that in the hope of the resurrection. And that for me has been something that I find great hope in because We see that God hasn't given up on the world. He's invested in its renewal and not just the renewal of us, you know, scooped off to 
be off in the ether, <laughs> but the renewal of all things is something that, yeah, gives me great hope. I want to just ask you about this point along a continuum of what you could describe as a constraint or an imposition that nonetheless mm. you can kind of gain things from mm-hmm. wisdom and different perspectives. And then when you get to a point where it's just a downright awful thing yeah. that's happened, that's definitely on that line, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm very careful to not romanticize those things. There are some things that are just so broken and warped and wrong in the world as we experience it. And I'm not saying, oh, just embrace them. <laughs> That's yeah. a good. But what I would say is that there are transferable lessons that translate across. So, for example, there's this philosopher called David McPherson in the States that talks about how we understand particular virtues helping us to live well within our limits. And I found that really helpful because I do think it's true that irrespective of whether something is a good limitation or a bad constraint, to put it crudely, I think that some of the same tools, some of the same handholds that help us navigate limits, working that muscle of patience, for example, so that when your plans are interrupted, your response isn't irritation or whatever, that muscle, the more you work that in the context of limits the better equipped you will be to respond to the intrusions of a constraint that you didn't choose and you can't change. Is some of what you're talking about, Steph, a sense of even in really difficult, painful things, sometimes there's a redemptive uh, spirit here that can lead you in directions you wouldn't have known without that difficulty and that can be restoring something important or providing you something important that you didn't have otherwise. Yeah, and I think that that's been true in, in my experience of physical disability is that I don't think of them as a good thing, but I think that good has definitely come from them. And they're good things that I feel like, you know, they accelerated a lot of character work that I probably wouldn't have undertaken if I just continued on as I was. And I think that that is a very, very good thing. Do you still wrestle some days with the what if or if only? Uh, it would be easier if I didn't have this thing. Oh, totally. Absolutely I do. But less and less. Like I think that, you know, your imagination of your life changes when you're in different seasons. If you think, in order to flourish, I need X, Y, Z. So in order to flourish, I need to have <laughs> total control and mm. you know, autonomy and basically a perfectly functioning body. Sure, you'd probably be more preoccupied with the life that was. But I think the more you become acclimatised to the fact that Well, what it is to flourish as a human is to be in intimate relationship with people in a way that's reciprocal and life-giving and there's not these hard barriers between us where I'm doing my thing independently of you, like an atomized solitary will, but it's porous. Mm. Like, I need you and you need me. And the more you think of flourishing in those terms, I think the less preoccupied you become with, do I have these abilities Am I able to perform in this way? And your vision for what the purpose of your life shifts over time. Well, Steph, I think you've got some hard-won wisdom that, as you say, might have come quicker than it might have otherwise. Mm. And some of us are gaining more slowly. But great (laughs) great to um, hear from you today. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Thanks, Simon. Always a pleasure. (laughs) 
This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Steph Judd has written and spoken on this topic. I'll put some links to her work in the show notes, including a link to a public lecture she gave last year for Anglican Deaconess Ministries. That lecture was titled The Dignity of Our Limits, and it really digs into the topic, so I recommend that to those interested in going further with it. Please do pass this episode on to someone you think might appreciate it. And if you're enjoying Life and Faith, leave us a review or rating. That will help others to hear about it. Next week. I had a young man bounding to the front in front of his peers, male and female, saying, I'm quitting porn, I'm quitting porn, because he realised that this was not something helping him to form good attitudes and beliefs about some really important things in life.